Indiana Bible College is committed to training tomorrow's apostolic leaders today. And this is the Indiana Bible College podcast. Today on the podcast, we are so grateful to have our last, well, we're not grateful for our last chapel of the semester, but it just so happens that we are grateful to have Reverend Jason Gallion, our executive vice president, preaching the last chapel of the semester. And he's going to come and bring some stories, uh, always entertaining, but very poignant word entitled, You Can't Save Yourself. But before we get to that message, I want to let you know about a special opportunity, especially for alumni. If you want to be a part of something super cool, something that will last years to come, you need to stay tuned next week. The Alumni Association is going to be revealing a fun, exciting, impactful project happening here on campus, and we want you to be a part. Right now, let's get right to Brother Jason Gallion, the last chapel of the semester you can't save yourself. But at least you'll have something to do for the rest of your life. <laughs> Praise the Lord. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis, the 13th chapter. I shared this with the senior class, and I do apologize to the senior class. Shout out to the senior class. But I felt compelled to share this with everyone today. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. We'll read all the way down to verse 4. We'll read to verse 5. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with them into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. He went on his journey from the south, even to Bethel, and to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, and to the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Verse 5, and Lot also went with Abram, had flocks, herds, and tents. I want to preach this thought today, if I could, for the next few moments. And I'll, I don't know how long this will be. Hopefully, it'll be very quick. That's what I hope for. It's probably going to be very long. But we'll hope for very quick. I want to preach this thought. You can't save yourself. Let's close our eyes and lift our hands one more time, if you could, and let's ask the Lord to be with us. Lord, we thank you for your touch that we felt in this worship service, your presence that was here. I pray for strength, God, that you would touch every mind so that we can comprehend every heart, so that we can receive every ear, so that we can hear. I pray, Lord, that your will be done in the next few moments of this last chapel, that you would prepare us and guard us and keep us. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We give you glory for all that you have done. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would make manifest itself again, that you would encourage and lift up and let faith be built in this place. We give you all glory and honor and praise. We love you, Jesus, for all that you've done. We magnify you, oh God, in Jesus' precious name, we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We had an amazing time on senior trip, hashtag survivors. Some of you know what I'm talking about. 
Just recently, though, I read a book. I actually haven't read the book. Like, I, I, let me go back. I just lied. I, I have not read a book. I have purchased a book. I have looked at this book, but I have not read this book. But I almost did because I listened to a podcast on this book. This book is titled Deep Survival, subtitle Who Lives and Who Dies and Why. It's a fascinating book, and I think it's, um, it's one that's going to merit reading. The podcast itself was enlightening. They begin to talk to the author, the author of this, Lawrence Gonzalez, and he begins to explain what this book is about. He talks about the people and the psychology of survival and why it's so important. Not just the set of skills, but actually the, the psychology of the person, the, how the person reacts in certain situations and how they think. It was very fascinating how he began to go through and he began to talk about this, this mental aspect that I never contemplated in survival. Now, I, I, love to, I love to hunt, I love to fish, I love to go camping, and I love to go hiking. Uh, I enjoy being out in the middle of the wilderness. Some of you have never had that wonderful opportunity, and, and I'm sorry about that. Some of you had no desire to ever have that opportunity, and, and that's your choice. Some of you are wanting that opportunity, and I hope that you get it. But before you get that opportunity, you need to make sure that you have some skills, by the way. Uh, it's, it's not just about being out there and, and having a phone to call somebody to come get you out. The philosophy that I've always lived my life with because it was taught to me by people that were really good at going out and getting back. They said this, nobody's coming to get you. If something happens, you have to get out on your own. In this, in this particular uh, podcast, it begins to describe, uh, this man began to say, you know, uh, there's been several instances where uh, people have been out on hikes, and one particular man he talks about was way up in the mountains. He was miles and miles back, and there was no way that anyone knew where he was, number one, or that they were even going to be able to get to him if they knew where he was. He broke his leg in this particular accident, and, and he, he was in so much pain. He did what he could to try to fix uh, that leg, to try to brace it up and put a splint, but it was not going to take away the fact that he could not walk. So self, I was going to die. I'm going to die. He said, I knew it. There was no way. No one knew me. I had no cell phone reception. No one knew where I was. I was out in the middle of wilderness with no one to come get me. He said, but something popped into my mind. And knowing that I was going to die, I said, but I'm going to try to get to that patch of rocks over there. And he said, I started working as hard as I could in excruciating pain. And I made it to the patch of rocks. I fell down those rocks and I thought, oh. I'll just, I'll die here. So after a few minutes, I, I started being able to breathe a little easier and I looked up and I thought, you know, I'm gonna die, but, but I'll die in that patch of trees over there. And so he began to crawl towards that patch of trees. Again, fell down exhausted and he said, oh, I'm, I'm gonna die right here. And he looked up and he thought, I'm gonna make it to that lake before I die. And three days later, he crawled out of the wilderness into a parking lot with cars. And they picked him up. He saved himself. Now, that's one of the rare occasions. But what it was, it was the resolve to not give up no matter what the circumstances look like. The podcast begins to go on and it talks about how there's some people that will have this push that they're going to get out of every situation and there's others that don't. And it's not just because it's this makeup in your mind that I'm going to die, I might as well give up or I don't have the proper skill set. No, he said there's sometimes that people that are highly qualified end up dying in what we would say it would be a normal situation. 
He talked about a, 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 some men that went riding snow machines up in the mountains in Alaska. And all my Alaska people give me a woohoo. Wow, okay. Uh, that was just exceptional. I really appreciate that. And, and, uh, and if you know anything about Alaska, you know what high marking is, is you get in a large valley with a snow machine. Isn't that right, Brandon? And you, you go up as high as you can up that mountain face. And the highest marks is the winner of the game. And uh, we've seen guys flip their machines end over end because uh, they didn't anticipate how steep that was. I've seen guys that have went up and that what they thought was the top of the mountain was actually just a cornice of snow that was hanging off. And they started an avalanche. And in this particular case, he talks about how this individual had done this over and over again. But yet when he went up, he got caught in an avalanche and died. He said the same kept kept coming around, people would say, he's such an experienced writer, how did he die? And, and he comes to this conclusion, he said, the reason is, is he took life-threatening risk constantly and got lucky. That's why. Experience, how could he have died being so experienced? Because it became the norm for him. That was not a smart thing to do. He should have known better, but yet he'd done it before. That rewarded good behavior. He'd done it again. He got by, so that began again to reward this, this not good behavior, but bad behavior until he got to the place where he was constantly putting his life in risk and felt like the odds will never catch up because I'm experienced, but it caught up with him. He goes on in this podcast and in this book, and he talks about a, a Colonel, uh, uh, I think his name is uh, Gava, I think that's his name, I can't remember. And he's talking about this Colonel, he's an Army Ranger, and he went whitewater, whitewater rafting, this Army Ranger. Somebody say, oh, in Jesus' name, you know where I'm going with this. And, and so they went whitewater rafting, this Army Ranger was in the boat, and they, they flipped the boat, and the Army Ranger fell out. The guide goes to reach to grab him, and the army ranger pushes his hands away and laughs, and he says, I'm an army ranger. I'm fine. Get the others first. That army ranger drowned, got caught under a log, and he drowned that day. And people say, what happened? What happened? Well, army rangers are taught, you don't, rescue, you don't get rescued, you rescue others. As a matter of fact, in Army Ranger School, to graduate, if you, are, if you are rescued, you're suspended, you're kicked out. And so the mentality is we don't get rescued, we rescue everyone else. I began to think about that mentality and, and thought about it even more so after it happened to us. Because if you haven't heard, our boat flipped over. Let me tell you who was in the boat. David Johnson. Stand up, David Johnson. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hunter, stand up, Hunter. London Angel. Savannah. My wife. Come on, Savannah, and myself. We're in the boat together. I knew it was going to be a bad trip. My wife thought, oh, no, something bad's going to happen. We get in the boat, and we're trying to practice. The guide's saying, okay, I need... I need Two right, and that means two four right, so you paddle twice on the right. All right, two left, and you paddle two on the left, and, and we're trying to get it. The first time he goes through the practice, David Johnson paddles backwards both times. <laughs> we're like, oh, no, we're going to die probably. <laughs> but David's a quick study, and he got it really fast. And as a matter of fact, he and Hunter were the brave souls that sat in the front of that raft, and they were the shields for all of us because they were shouting out, paddle two left. 
One, two, and we would all be in unison and we were cruising down the river with Stoney. Stoney or Stoner was our guide, whichever you prefer. Both fit. Stoney had uh, many years of experience. He said, I've been, I've been rafting on this, this river since I was 18. I said, how old are you? He said, 26. He seemed very competent at first. We love Stoney. We got a selfie in the raft with Stoney. We got a video. Yay, Stoney, best river around. He was a great guy, right? And, and we, we, we should have known something wasn't quite there. We, we kept going down the river, and some of these large drop-offs, Stoney would decide to turn the boat sideways and tell everyone, all right, lean, and to the opposite direction of the direction we're going. And, and we would come down some of these major class threes sideways, and, and we, we should have known this is not right. You take them head on. You, you go through. You navigate. Some of them, you have to circumvent rocks. In the middle of the river, there's, there's wide open river, and the only rock in the middle, guess what? Stoney gets us hung up on the only rock in the middle of the river. We should have known something wasn't right and sure enough, we were rafting down and we're about to hit this three that goes into another three and, and Stoney again decides to go down sideways and it's a drop, a pretty significant drop and he's like, all right, everybody lean and we leaned. But you cannot lean when the boat's at a 90 degree angle. That boat flipped over and all of us went under the water. Uh, several of us got caught underneath the boat and every time we'd try to come up, it would smack our heads and push us back down. White water's churning all around us. People are getting legs, bruises, everything else, screaming. Everyone stops and they're shouting, trying to save us and, and we get out spitting water and throwing canoe paddles and the only one having a great time was Hunter. He's doing backstrokes over there in an eddy. <laughs> He's picking up people's paddles. And I got three. I got. It's like there's not a contest, Hunter. You're not going to get paid for retrieving paddles. Get in the boat. David Johnson is over there. He's doing swan dives uh, off small rocks. And the rest of us are fighting for our life because the boat's on top of us and the water is churning and we're being tumbled around like, like in a wash tub. And finally, they, they, we, we get our bearings and then there's the boat and and I'm trying to uh, figure out what I'm supposed to do and and I push Savannah away I'm like I can't rescue you Savannah just go go swim be free and uh, I couldn't help myself I can't swim so I thought why am I trying to help her she's already kayak she's a good swimmer go go I look over, my wife and I make eye contact. It gives me so much relief she's very close to the boat only to be ran over by the boat but they eventually grab her and they save her life and, and I'm swimming to the edge and, and there's a boat full of guys. It's so packed out, you couldn't squeeze one more guy into that boat. As a matter of fact, Devin Edge has no place to even sit in the boat. He's lying down in the very front with his arms crossed and, and I'm, I'm swimming towards that boat. They're going, swim, swim, and I'm swimming towards the boat and they're doing what they told us to do in orientation. When you fall out, stick your paddle out. They'll grab the paddle, they'll pull you in or if you're in the boat, stick your paddle out. They'll grab the paddle. You pull them in. Use the paddle. And as I'm swimming towards the boat, they're sticking the paddle out and I keep pushing the paddle aside. Because in my mind, I thought, I'm going to get in the boat. I'm going I'm to swim to the boat. I'm going to pull myself into the boat. They kept saying, grab the paddle. Grab the paddle. I wouldn't grab the paddle and it dawned on me, why am I not grabbing the paddle? 
Because something in my mind said, I need to be responsible for everybody on this trip. I'll save myself because that's what you do as a leader, right? You save people. Then this podcast began to replay in my mind. And you know what I did? I grabbed the paddle. I let them pull me over to the boat. I put my hands up. And you know what they did? They pulled me into the boat on top of Devin Edge. I'm sitting on his head probably. I'm sorry, Devin. We get into the boat. And it was such relief. I thought I'll live again to see tomorrow. Thank you, Jesus. I begin to think about that psychology though. Why wouldn't I grab the paddle? Because a lot of times in life, leaders are the ones that feel the sense of responsibility and we don't like to be rescued. We want to rescue everyone around us. Ladies and gentlemen, when you get home this summer, don't get into a mentality that you're the one that's there to rescue people. You better get into a relationship with God. You better realize that there's a moment that I need spiritual fed. I need to connect with God. I need to get to a place where I got to figure myself out. Don't let your arrogance and pride, don't get to a place where you just allow people uh, to depend upon you for everything. There comes a moment in every leader's life where we have to have some fundamentals in play every day. I need to get up every day and connect with God. I've got to separate myself from the world that I live in. I've got to be in a place where I can feel his presence over and over. And just because I'm on the platform and I sing every Sunday, or I teach Sunday school every Wednesday and just because I'm constantly praying for those in the altar doesn't mean that every now and then I don't need a spiritual rescue but you've got to get to a place oh hear me when you get home it's okay to find an altar every now and then and sacrifice it's okay to get in that altar and pour yourself out to God and say God I need your help You know, the problem with being in a small group is you're always doing something on the platform and very rarely do you find yourself in an altar. Guess what? You need to be rescued spiritually. There comes a moment when you have to get off your keyboard. You've got to walk away from your drum. You've got to set your Bible and your notes down and you need to find yourself in your prayer closet or in an altar seeking the face of God. I'll call his name because I'm proud of him. His name is Gentry Sharp. He's a drummer for praise. He's now the hyphen director at his church in Louisville, Kentucky. He's a good kid. He's not a kid anymore. He's a full-grown man. Wonderful student here at IBC. I cannot tell you how many times in the middle of a worship set. We'd look around to see what was going on. Most of the time, Gentry would be in that altar laid out on his face. Other times, he would have already put the drumsticks down, hands up, speaking in tongues. Pull me into the boat. I'm I'm just going to let that your spirit just engulf me. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, you need to have those moments with God. Oh, hear me, preacher. You're not so stellar in your approach to the pulpit that you don't need to admit every now and then, I need the presence of God. I need the presence of God. I need to move the spirit. There comes a moment where you just got to put push past protocol. You've got to stop worrying about how I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do on this platform and you need to get in that altar and let God know I've surrendered my heart and my life and I'm committed to you. Oh, IBC, we've got to let this summer be the summer where God begins to change us and grow us. God begins to do the greatest work that he's ever done. Why? Because there's a world out there that needs your ministry, but you'll never be able to reach that ministry if you're constantly saving others, but never take concern for yourself.
here's the question. When's the last time you've had a move of God in your life? When's the last time you've spoken in tongues? When's the last time you were slayed in the spirit, if ever? When's the last time that you, you forgot about how, how your suit was pressed or your shirt ironed? Last time you, you forgot about those beautiful high heels that you just purchased from, from some store. And, and the last time that, that you just forgot about how your hair was so perfect, there's no way that, that you could just dance and shout. And you lost yourself in that altar. Oh, I'm not just talking about your worship. I'm talking about something so much deeper. Your consecration where you pour yourself out to God and you say, God, I need you to rescue me. There's moments in my life that I couldn't figure out what direction to even go. I didn't have a plan to figure out the problems and the mess that I was in. I needed God to step in and grab hold of my hand and pull me into the boat. Oh, hear me. There comes a moment where it's okay for you to say, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get through this. I don't know what decision to even make. I need your presence in my life right now. Just push past the distraction of the world. Separate yourself from the ideology of the world and let God reach down and touch your life. We look at our text. We begin to see a very spiritual man unfold here in the form of Abram. Abram was an incredible character in Scripture. He did what no one before him had ever done. Abram was that man that God called a friend. He, he had a special relationship with Abram. He's the father of many nations. He became Abraham because his children were as the stars that are in the sky. How can you count them? You cannot. God was going to multiply. He's the man that had the sevenfold promise. I will make thee a great nation. I will bless thee. I will make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse thee. And these shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What a promise that was. Can you imagine? There was nothing that Abraham could not accomplish. There was nothing that Abraham could not do with that promise. Abraham never had to fight a battle in his life. Because anybody that came against Abraham, God was going to take out. I'm going to let the Lord fight my battles. Victory, victory shall be mine. Y'all remember that? Abraham lived it. Abraham was a spiritual man. We find the success in Abraham and how spiritual he was by several very significant things that Abraham did. The first mark of Abraham's life that we would say that this distinctive mark of being spiritual is this, number one. Abraham was the first person to ever be separate from the world that he lived in. Abraham did what God asked. And what God asked him was leave your family, leave your friends, leave your country. I want you to take a journey, Abraham. Take a journey to a far off country. Everywhere that your feet trod, I, I'm going to bless you. And, and, and every person that blesses you, I'll bless them. And everyone that curses you, don't worry because I'm going to curse them. And I'm going to take you to the promised land, this place that I have I've destined for you, your ministry, your life, your family. There's something special is going to happen. This land will forever be known by your name. It will forever be known as your people. Abraham, I'm going to give it to you. But to have this, you've got to leave everything behind and walk away from it. You've got to walk away from your job. 
You've gotta walk away from your comfort. You've gotta walk away from family. You've gotta walk away from your friends. You have to alienate yourself. Nobody is really gonna go with you. They won't understand why you're leaving. You've always been here. This is where you're from. This is who you are. But Abraham, I don't want you to stay by who you are and what you've always been. I'm taking you on a journey. Some of you have already began the journey to a promised place. Some of you have already stepped out and started separation. Separation begins a lot of times by leaving leaving behind the dream of your past and the dreams of what you thought you were going to be and accepting the vision and the dream that God has placed inside of you at an altar somewhere. Maybe it was a youth camp or a youth rally or maybe it was in your bedroom one night that God began to unfold it. You told your family, I'm not seeking a higher education. I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer, but I want to be a preacher. I, I want to be a worship leader. Some of you had to leave some friends behind that were trying to pull you back and be a negative influence. Some of you had to walk away from some family and saying I'm separating myself because I, I'm not going the direction you're going. Some of you it was very difficult and you find yourself low anxiety because you felt like you had no friends and no purpose but you're still striving to reach that place that God has called you to. Guess what? You're just like Abraham. You've got to separate yourself. You've got to cut yourself off from some things that identify you with your past. Separation is a godly thing. Separation means holiness. Separation means I'm coming out of this world and I'm looking different and I'm talking different. I'm acting different. I'm not who they say I am. I don't identify with this world. I'm a stranger that's passing through. Separation is powerful. What you put on does not have the ability to make you holy. Holiness is in your heart. But what you put on does have the ability to make you unholy. So you guard, and that's why we have distinctions in our dress. That's why holiness is important, for without it, no man shall see God. That's why we don't act like the world. If your conversation mimics the world, you're not of God. If you're speaking perverted and sexual all the time, if you're cursing, if you're saying things inappropriate, guess what? There's no fruit of the Spirit there. If you have such a problem that people can't distinguish you from the homosexual community, guess what? There's no fruit of the Spirit there. You're acting more like the world. If you walk around and your people on your job, they don't know that you're even a Christian, guess what? You haven't separated yourself. You're acting like the world. God has not called you to mimic the world. God has called you to be separate. Now, 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 let me just get in everybody's business here. Because the fruit of the Spirit is, is, is important. The initial evidence of God's Spirit is what? So, that's it. Speaking in tongues. So, what's the evidence of God's Spirit active in your life? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Brother Marlow used to do this all the time. Brother Walden was telling me about this. He'd sit down at a table with a bunch of young preachers and he would try the spirit. Now, I'm, I don't know. You make your own opinion on that. But that might be something a little interesting. Sit down and be like, hand me that right there. No, what is wrong with you? I, I meant that. Forget it. No, give me this. And he would do things like that just to see what kind of spirit would come out in that person. There were people that he would frustrate so bad that they would, they would start throwing things at him. And they would say... Very derogatory. Would you just figure out what you want? 
And he'd say, mark that person. That's not a Christian spirit. There's no fruit. There's no love, joy. But that person that responded the correct way, he would say, try the spirit, try the spirit. That's a good person right there. The spirit's right. The spirit's right. Oh, I wonder what would happen if we started trying the spirits around. I'm not, I'm not advocating for this. I wonder what would happen if we started trying the spirits. What happens when we get a little agitated or angry or mad? What, what, what happens when no one else is around? What, what we fall into? What happens when temptation presents itself? What happens? Oh, the spirit, the spirit. I, I, you can be angry. There's nothing wrong with anger. Just don't sin. And I don't know where that line is, but, but anger's... Well, Jesus got so angry that he started braiding leather together and made a whip, walked into the temple and started kicking tables over, drove people out with a whip. So I guess you could hit people with a whip, and that's not the sinning part yet. But, but we, that may be a little stretch of the scripture, so we'll have Brother Kilman straighten that out for us later. But, <laughs> but be careful about that. But, but there needs to be something that we look at. There, there has to be a distinction, a separation. Because you know what? If it's all about just what we wear or what we don't wear, the Muslim community is so much more holier than we are. The Amish are so much more holier than we are. But it's more than that. It's how we act and how we respond. It's how we talk. It's how we, how we present ourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, you may be the only Bible that your coworker ever reads or your family ever reads. So I want to make sure that the fruit of the Spirit are active in my life. And to get that, I've got to make sure my relationship with God is repaired and okay. Because if I'm going to be separate from this world, there's got to be more than just separation from the world. You've got to be separate into something. You've got to be connected to a source. Because if you cut yourself off from the world, then you're just a good person. But you've got to be more than a good person. You've got to have a relationship with God. You've got to be a godly person. Someone that knows who you are. Your identity matters. And Abraham separated himself from the world that he lived in. The second thing is this. Sanctification. Let me just say this. The world is the enemy of God. Don't forget that. Sometimes we feel that we can get so close and we can mimic some things. But we have to be careful. I've sat in an auditorium. What is that place where the basketball team plays? The Pacers play. The Pacers. Gamebridge? They've renamed it again? I don't even know what it's called. They keep changing that name every week. I guess whoever buys it out, they just change it to that. I've sat in there and I've heard, I went to a leadership conference years ago and I heard some of the greatest speakers get up and talk. I've got pages full of notes. I can show you a little black leather journal that I have. I keep it in my office. And there's pages of notes in there of speakers that got up. They had the lights just right in that big building. The sound system was phenomenal. We were setting up, and I was setting up in these nice, comfortable seats. And they were getting up, and they were... I felt, I felt goosebumps. The emotion was there. He never mentioned one thing about God. He was talking about his life and how he, he rose from these horrific circumstances and poverty and became successful. He was, he was bringing in all of these metaphors, phenomenal how he pulled us in. I, I've heard other speakers on YouTube. I, I've listened to multiple TED Talks and so have you. And, and there's been moments where you felt that emotional context. Sp- non-spiritual people would feel that that was the presence of God. Your emotion is not the presence of God. 
there's something so much deeper. But here's the problem. You can manipulate people with emotion. Have no spirit of God moving. But you can manipulate them to a place where they'll begin to believe and they'll begin to hope for. There's people that actually can say that they felt God's spirit and never have truly felt the spirit of God. We have churches that are mimicking, and because it's so thick with emotion, they're mimicking the move of the Holy Ghost. We've got, we call them charismatic churches that come in and they've got lights and the music and, oh, you know how it is. Some of you worship leaders and musicians, you start hitting those certain chords and, and you go to that note change and you can get people on their feet immediately. You can manipulate emotion, but the manipulation of emotion does not mean that it's the presence of God. You see, there has to be so much more. There's got to be context there. When, when we start mimicking what the world does or we start mimicking these churches that don't have truth and we get the lights and the fog machine. I'm, I'm not against that. We've got lights here. We don't have a fog machine yet. Probably never going to have a fog machine. We've got lights here, but we'll just leave it at that. But if you get to a place where you try to mimic their set list and their music, and you get the lights just right, and the sound system dialed in, and you begin to manipulate, and all you have is manipulation of emotions, guess what you don't have? You don't have the presence of God. And you may wonder why we can get people in an altar, but we can't get them to stay in the church. It's because because all that we've done is manipulate their emotion, but we've never connected them to what matters. There's no substance in their life. So we've got to do more than just separate from the world and mimic what the church does. We've got to be sanctified. Because sanctification is the same coin, but just a different side of separation. Because sanctification means that you're set apart to something. I want to be more than just separated from the world. I want to be sanctified unto God. That means that I've got purpose. That means that God hasn't just pulled me out of the miry clay and set my feet on a rock to say. That doesn't mean that God just brought me a long ways just to leave me. But no, God brought you out. Some of you have a testimony, but you've got to stop living the testimony of your past because God didn't just separate you and bring you out to bring you to a place, and that's it. But God sanctified you for a purpose. You see, there's a ministry. There's a calling. There's lost souls that need a prayer and a minister. There's church services that need a genuine move of the Holy Ghost. We've got to stop going through the motions. We've got to stop manipulating emotional context, but we've got to get the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God can only be brought about with someone that has been separated and sanctified. That means I've got to have a prayer life. I've got to have a relationship with God. If you're up here on the platform, and all you do is just manipulate emotions, then guess what? You failed that generation. You failed that that congregation and you have failed God I've got to make sure that everything that I do that I've prayed over I've separated myself I've sought the face of God I'm in the prayer room I know what it is to feel the presence of the almighty see we stop we, we stop talking about sanctification because sanctification is difficult it means everything you do has to be in the will of God. That means everything that you seek is not my own. That means the path that I'm on is not because it's advantageous to me or not because it's what I would like to do. Sanctification is difficult. Some people never get it. That means you don't, you don't choose the best option. You choose, you choose God's option. I mean, you're not looking for... 
an opportunity. You're seeking his will. That means you don't just make decisions based upon how you feel at the moment. You have to make the decision based upon what is God's will for my life. You see, God's will doesn't always look great or fun. It doesn't always bring you to the platform. It doesn't always elevate your status. It doesn't always pay the bills. The will of God doesn't always uh, mean a nice car or a good house. The the will of God doesn't always mean that that you're you're respectable in in certain circles. No, you know what the will of God means? The will of God is that I've been set apart to something. That it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. It doesn't matter if I'm going home after graduation to that little country church of only a handful of people and everyone's looking at me saying, what are you doing? Don't you know you're created for something? something more than that. You've got better opportunities than that. Come on, I'll, I'll hook you up. I got a friend that's got a friend that knows a pastor that's looking, oh no, no, it's the will of God for me to walk into that country church. I don't know what God has in store. It doesn't matter the outcome. I've been sanctified. I've been set apart for a purpose. I know that God has a plan for my life. It doesn't matter the direction you go. I've got to go my plan, plan my direction. It doesn't matter what your peers say. I've got to do what God says. We have separation and sanctification. And I think those are the first two marks of a spiritual man. What time is it? Oh, we got to hurry. I, 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 I preached so long, my, my, my thing went to sleep. The third mark of a spiritual man is sacrifice. Abraham came into the place of the altar. Verse 4 which he made there at the first. And there Abraham called the name of the Lord. Separation, sanctification, sacrifice. The first two look kind of good. It's the last one that'll get you. Because sacrifice comes in ways that you cannot even fathom. Because God will bring you through take you on a journey and you'll compare yourself to your peers and say they've got it so much better than I have look at where they're at look at what opportunity they've gotten and here I am over here just trying to claw my way through life ladies and gentlemen that's not the pinnacle of success is what they've achieved because a spiritual individual knows that sacrifice is the third step to be called a righteous man or woman of God sacrifice means just what Abraham did leaving everything behind and going to a foreign place walking away from everything that's familiar some of you have done that and God's not finished with you how how many walked away from family and friends you, you walked away from a lot just to get here to Indiana Bible College. I want you to raise your hand. That's called sacrifice. Sacrifice. I look at missionaries because missionaries in my mind make the greatest sacrifice, Brother Turner. Because missionaries don't just say that they'll forsake everything. They do it. And they leave their family. And they leave their loved ones. And they leave their friends. Oh, some of you, you think you're lonely here? Just wait till you get over on a mission field somewhere where you don't have 250 people down the hallway. You've got you and your spouse, and that's it. 
and you've got you and your spouse for at least four years before you can go on deputation, and then you'll get all the fellowship that you want to have. But four years, just the two of you. Guess what? You better have a good relationship with that other person. But that sacrifice is where you're giving everything up. There's some missionaries that we know their names, and we think, ooh, those missionaries. And, and, and boy, we would love to be those missionaries. But there's hundreds of missionaries that you've never even heard of. Some of them have gone on. Some of them are on the field right now. You don't know who they are because that's not what sacrifice is. It's not about knowing their name. If you knew their name, then they would not be able to achieve what God has called them to achieve. They're over there sacrificing because every sacrifice you make to God, guess what God is going to do? He's going to reward your sacrifice because when you begin to give up things of your life and you begin to separate yourself and sanctify yourself and set yourself so far apart and you're fulfilling the call of God that sacrifice does not go unheeded in heaven that's when God begins to pour out blessings that's when God begins to bring a great anointing that's when souls are being reached and Bible studies are being built there's some missionaries that are pastoring more people in some foreign country that you've never even heard of than have ever pastored as a pastor in the United States of America. Thousands of people are being saved. The greatest preachers, the greatest ministers of the gospel are reaching thousands on a foreign mission field. It's called sacrifice. Nobody's patting them on the back. Nobody's loading their pockets full of money, but they're doing this for the kingdom of God, and it's not what they reap here on this earth, but it's what they've stored up in heaven because there are treasures that sacrifice puts ahead in heaven. Those sacrifices are there as a memorial for God to see. Though man cannot understand, God sees your sacrifice. You know what? It's okay to be in a place where you feel like that nobody knows who I am but God. As long as God knows who you are, then you've made the right sacrifice and you're living the right life. Abraham, he built an altar of sacrifice. That's the first thing that he did. Gave his, his abundance to God. Abraham was constantly sacrificing the form of worship, commitment, and dedication. Abraham sacrificed in every area of his life. He trusted God. There are times where he failed. We know the story of Abraham. But God's grace was sufficient for him. Tell me that grace and mercy was not a part of the Old Testament. It's always been a part of God's character. We look at Abraham's life, and I'm closing. We'd have to compare his life to Lot's life. You see, whereas Abraham's a spiritual man, Lot was not a spiritual man. Or maybe he was. Because we find... The Apostle Peter's second epistle, some very interesting words about Lot. We, we really have great difficulty if we read this correctly, saying that Lot was not a righteous man. Because the Apostle Peter assures us that Lot was a spiritual man. He calls him that righteous man and tells that he vexed his righteous soul from day to day. So Lot was not an evil man, an unspiritual man. Lot was a righteous man. Well, the first part is Lot was weak in his devotions. Because whereas Abraham built an altar the moment that God began to speak to him, 
We never see Lot ever building an altar. So in 13 and 5, there's no altar that Lot built. Number two is 13 and 10, he was worldly in his desires. There was an issue that arose between the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot. They knew it. They were strife among them. Abraham did not immediately act upon it until Lot came to him and said, hey, we got an issue here. Abraham, the promise was given. Everything was his. He's the patriarch. Abraham could have said, then you take yours and go over here. But Abraham said, no, Lot, you're right. We need to depart. Choose whatever land you want. Lot began to look out over those plains that were towards Sodom. He saw the lush water and the grass. And never once do we find that Lot says, how is this going to affect my family? How is this going to affect my relationship with God? What does God have to say about this? But Lot made a decision based upon what was advantageous to his pocketbook. This makes more financial sense. My herds have plenty of water if I move there. There's grass and they'll thrive. So his desires were worldly. He was wrong in his decisions because he didn't make a godly decision. He made a fleshly decision. And so we see the contrast between this once righteous man making this journey to become unrighteous. Let me just say this. You're here at Bible school and some of you have gotten by this entire year, though not very well, on a corporate relationship with God. You have so much church and so many times where you open that Bible that you felt that that was significant for you to sustain. But the game has changed, ladies and gentlemen, because you're not in elementary school anymore. As a matter of fact, you're in God's school. Not just because you're at Indiana Bible College, but you're at a place where God's trying to educate you and to shape you. God's trying to get you to a place. And so you can't just go like you've always gone. You can't just live from youth camp to youth camp, from Sunday to Sunday. You, you can't just go in the classroom and, and, and read a couple verses and call it good and pray in chapel and say, I'm fine. No, you've got to set some roots and you've got to begin to grow spiritually because if you're not careful, oh, hear me, if you're not careful, you're going to make decisions that are contrary to the will of God, to the purpose of God, to the plan of God. And you'll make decisions that once you were a right righteous individual but because you've never built an altar and because you're just trying to grab whatever opportunity looks the best on paper and because your decisions are based upon what I'm going to get out of it not what God wants guess what that righteous man will move into Sodom because you're going to get a little closer and a little closer you want to know a good indicator of where you're at spiritually where you're at spiritually is how well you respond in services if you don't respond in church service or in chapel guess what your spiritual barometer is broke and you're not really sensitive enough to let God begin to do a work but if you're sensitive I promise you you've got you've to take some steps and you've got to begin to make decisions and you've got to build an altar and you've got to consecrate yourself but if you're not you'll find yourself more like the world and less like God and it's glaring musicians come it's glaring the danger is this the danger is some of you won't make it. And how does that happen? It happens because maybe we were once righteous, but now we're not. Be careful because this summer can make a huge difference in your life. 
It can either bring, it can either bring you closer to God or push you further away. The only person that can make the decision on which direction you're going to go is you. So who's going to build an altar? Who's going to separate themselves? Who's going to allow God to sanctify them? And who's willing to sacrifice? Say, God, I give you all. Here's the price tag. Up front, living for God is the greatest cost because the price tag for him is everything. But if you decide not to go with God and give everything, you'll pay the price in small increments for the rest of your life because you will never stop paying. So who's going to build the altar today? And who's going to separate themselves? Let's just be real transparent. Can we? I'm dreadfully worried about some of you. Some of you are not prepared. Some of you have no desire. I've watched the Holy Ghost move in chapels, in church, at conferences. For an entire year, I've watched some of you remain stoic and disconnected. And you could say, oh, it's, it's not my personality. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not about personality. Well, I, I don't want to make a show. Well, you know what? You don't even have to make it to the altar. You, you don't have to take your altar and, and put it right here behind the pulpit. Pick up every brick. That's, that's not what an altar is. But you need an altar. And maybe that altar is right there in that pew where you're at. It'd be too late when you get home. I'm telling you, you know what the enemy wants to do? He's, he's the enemy of your soul. Satan is the enemy of your soul. He wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He wants to destroy everything that you've tried to accomplish this year. Oh, oh you think that it was tough trying to remain pure and holy and righteous and focused here if you had a hard time living for God here let me just say this this is the greatest environment ever to succeed in the presence of God but if you struggled here you better build that altar as fast as you can right now because when you step out of this environment the enemy is going to leash everything that he can some of you struggled on spring break why because you hadn't built the altar and the enemy came against you and you failed and you failed miserably you need to build that altar because you're walking right back into his territory when you walk out of Indiana Bible College and your church doesn't need someone that's trying to figure out if they're going to live for God or not they need somebody that know their identity and walk in saying I've got a I've got a God who can Come on, I'm coming here because I built the altar. I've separated myself. God is saying, he's called me. Come on, what the, what the world needs is a preacher, a minister of the gospel. Whether you're a musician, a singer, or a preacher of the world, you're a minister of the gospel. And God needs you to proclaim the good news to a generation that has died and lost. Sanctification means this too. goes along with separation but you stay as far away from the edge as possible 
we're driving up through Hatcher's past Brother Sister Wilson, some of our closest friends, and some of you know he's the president of Texas Bible College. And Hatcher's Pass is a beautiful little drive. It's all gravel. It goes up in the mountains, old gold mines. It goes from Osceola to Palmer, the back way. We're driving up, and there's long drop-offs, and, and Sister Wilson's terrified of heights. She is so terrified of heights. She, she is hyperventilating. She takes a blanket and puts it over top of her head so she can't even see. Her husband may or may not have tried to agitate her. He'd be like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, we're going so close. And she'd literally start praying, Jesus, Jesus. And she was praying. She was praying. Tears run down. She was so scared. We, I felt so bad. We stopped the vehicle. I got to where I was driving over in the other lane as far away from the edge as I could because she would find peace when I would drive like that. I would drive super slow just to make sure that there was no risk of, of running off that edge because there's no guardrail, ladies and gentlemen. There's nothing. And if you go over, it's just you. <laughs> Nobody's coming to get you. Isn't that right, Brandon? You've been there. Stop playing the game of seeing how close that you can get to the edge because nobody's a winner picked up a book a few years ago called The Deaths in the Grand Canyon Brother Staten preached a message on it it's a great book it goes through and it lists everyone that dies in the Grand Canyon it's not a great book in that sense but it's a great book if you're looking for good illustrations and the majority of the people that have died in the Grand Canyon most of them the far higher percentage of those that have died they died according to the reports of the rangers because they got too close to the edge. One story that just sticks out in my mind is there was a father, son, and, and he said, son, take my picture, he's a teenage boy. And he jumps over the guardrail, and the boy says, dad, dad, don't, you, you're not supposed to cross the guardrail. It says, do not cross. He laughs at his son. He said, boy, he said, I'm gonna tell you something as he begins to step backwards. He said, if you never break the rules, you'll never get anywhere in life. And as he makes his last step, the edge crumbles and he falls to his death several thousand feet. His boy is left there holding the camera. Wow, what a statement for that kid. But some of you are making statements to people that look up to you in your youth group, your peers that are here in this room. And the way you live your life is you're getting closer and closer, saying, look how cool this is. Look, look how cool this is. Look at here, man, I went through Bible school. I never even opened my textbook. Uh, look at this, man, you know, I never even prayed. I, I never even read my Bible. Uh, you know what, we, we got little group threads going and texts going, and, and boy, you know what, we'll talk any way we want to. And, and, and we'll just, you know what, who's gonna catch us and what does it matter? Because we're gonna get as close to we can as the edge. I'm not backslidden. <laughs> I'm still on the platform, right? I still preach MSAs and, and, and look what I'm doing. Look, we're, we glorify. But you're taking too many chances because you're getting closer and closer and that edge is gonna crumble. Oh, you better hear me. You better get to this altar right now. There needs to be somebody that pours himself out to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I don't wanna, I don't wanna lose what I've gained this semester. God, I wanna get home and make an impact. I'm tired of the enemy messing with my mind. I, I, I'm not gonna, I, I'm not 
not going to get that close, God. I'm going to make sure that I'm, I can sacrifice. I, I want to be sanctified. God, I want to be separated from this world. I don't want to go back to what I used to be. I'm tired of living my life the way the enemy has been pushing me and, and gouting me. God, I want to be who you have created me to be. Lord, I give you everything. Come on, that's it. Somebody needs to reach out right now. Somebody needs to find their face in a pew or an altar or, or the carpet and you need to just begin to call upon that name. Say, God, rearrange how I think. God, touch my spirit. Lord, I need you right now. Come on, that's it. You may not be able to save yourself, but I do think that you can take action to get you to a place where you can be saved. You can get out of town, wrap their arms around you. Come on, that's it. That's where we need to be.